0: Welcome to the T's and C's,
1: Tiso and Chantel,
0: also known as the Terms and Conditions.
1: Welcome to T's and C's weekly reflection. We are absolutely buzzing to be joined by Professor Gaminda Bambra. It's really exciting for us especially to have Gaminda on the podcast this week because her scholarship, her theorisation, her scholar activism has been such an important been such an important consideration and inspiration for us at surviving society particularly with regards to how we think about Brexit and Trump, which was one of the reasons why we decided to start Surviving Society. So it is a very, very, it's a very special recording for us today. So thank you so much for joining us, Gaminda. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. And if you do not know Gaminda, then get to know Gaminda is Professor of Postcolonial and Decolonial Theory. She is the founder of Global Social Theory and the co-founder of Discover Society. With regards to making sociology relevant and making Making sociology online and decolonial theory just Everywhere and something that should be considered constantly. Like Gaminda is really at the forefront and has been for a long time on this stuff. I think it's just worth noting before we get into this that it is the eighth of June, twenty twenty, and we are in (laughs) kind of like a very very odd moment and we schedule. As you you guys as listeners know, we schedule our podcast. We're very meticulous in our scheduling about eight weeks before things come out. So we are going to be talking to Gaminda her conceptualization of um, methodological whiteness and Brexit and Trump and how that now speaks to this COVID-19 moment to weave within our conversations is going to be this, the presence of... Um this global Black Lives Matter moment. Thank you again so much for joining us, Gaminda. Really excited for our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it would be good to to start from the, the broad questions that we had discussed but also put to you, Gaminda, before, a bit, again, before this week sort of happened.
0: When I was reading your work, the thing that, that I kind of pulled out and I was looking at is how the absence in the current debate, how people who voted for Brexit or voted for Trump we always in the narrative is put out across as it's the white working class and how class had become a, a byword for race almost but without m- mentioning it and it's this kind of thing that I'm interested in because when I spoke to normal people about this whole issue they shift from race to class without really knowing Interesting, if you could expand upon that
2: well I guess I mean in terms of thinking about who gets included and who gets excluded from mm-hmm. our from our conceptions of who we are so much of it is determined by the histories that we acknowledge that have produced the polity that we understand ourselves to be in. So my interest in thinking about the votes in relation to Brexit and what Brexit symbolised in a way was how the debate was organised around an understanding of Britain where Britain was understood to have a past that was predominantly national. And if you think about Britain as having a past that's predominantly national, then you think that the people who ought to be the subject of public policy in the present are those who can demonstrate historical belonging to the nation. And so there was a concern that over the 80s and 90s with the sort of project of multiculturalism, that there had been undue advantage given to people who are seen to be other and who are seen to come from outside the nation. And there was a sense, I think, within many of the discourses around Brexit, why is it that these people who don't demonstrate historical belonging to the nation are somehow being given privileges and advantages, even if that was not empirically correct, as we Mm -hmm. know from the vast amount of sociological research on racial and ethnic inequalities and how long-standing these are, there was nonetheless a sense for some people that their relative position was worsening. And given that I've got a background also in history, there was a sense for me that, you know, Britain's never been a nation. It's always been an empire. So why is it when we're thinking about who has legitimacy in the present, do we organise that thinking in terms of a historical understanding of Britain as a nation instead of Britain as an empire? Because actually Britain was an empire and everybody who was within the polity was at least technically or formally understood to be subjects and then citizens. And this was something that stayed in place at least until the 1960s or 70s, when the Commonwealth Immigration Acts were brought in and began to take citizenship away from people. So in a way, this idea of who constitute or who is a legitimate member of the polity is really tied into this inadequate history that we have of who we are and how we came to be. And. The work that I've done has really been about challenging those historical conceptualizations.
0: So as I see at the moment then that these the terms that people use have to describe a nation are inadequate in it and mm-hmm. maybe they need to be reformed. And this has always been the case, but people have always given up because they say that it's the nation state, these things are quite big and too chunky and they're always gonna be. But maybe now's the time to rethink those polities because as far as I can see, that even in, in post-colonial states, those things hamper development, the idea of nationhood, right?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, that's I mean, one of the things that I always say when people ask me about my work is partly that, you know, you've had understandings of post-colonialism, of decoloniality theory and these other aspects. And they're often based on trying to understand the world in South Asia, the Middle East, Latin America, the Caribbean, Africa. And the one place that never has applied a post-colonial lens to itself is Europe. Now, given that colonization is a process that connects places in regimes of hierarchy and inequality, why should the critique of post-coloniality or decoloniality only be applied to those countries or places that were at the effects of colonization and not also to those who perpetrated colonization? And so what I've tried to do is bring the insights of post-colonial and decolonial theory to bear on our understandings of Europe, to subject Europe and Britain specifically, to critique from those
1: sorts of perspectives. One of the big inspirations for us with regards to your work, particularly how impersonate it has been for me and T as PhD students, is the way you have challenged the social sciences in perpetuating the myths that you outline. And I think personally, in this current moment, And also thinking about the referendum till... 2019 and then now this COVID-19 moment it's like a couple of things spring to mind it's like why weren't you listening you've played a role in this racializing moment and what you said in your Discover Society more recent that Discover Society piece Caminda about COVID-19 and we needed to rethink how we think about Brexit with regards to that do you talk about how open and how laid bare all these things are now these things that yourself and so many others have been talking about and reifying and writing about for such a long time it's so clear how are you going to rectify with how clear this is now because you've been able to gaslight us through so many different means the social scientists the media commentary, academics like but now how will they do that with regards to what i'm trying to say i'm more i'm more making a statement of questions and I think that's what we do a lot on this podcast I don't necessarily have the answers but I'm I'm concerned and I'm nervous about that reinvention of what of what has been so clear for such a long time for so many.
2: I mean I think what's so interesting about the COVID-19 moment is precisely as you've just said that it lays bare all those things that we've been trying to sort of highlight for any number of years and to think both about the fact that the working class or that the British working class is not only white, that the British working class is multicultural, but also that the that the working class in Britain is not just British. And we see that with the Romanian and other Eastern European uh, workers who are being brought in to pick fruit and vegetables and, and so on. And one of the things that has made this more apparent is just the way in which COVID-19 has affected BAME populations so disproportionately. And so if night after night after night on the mainstream news channels, what you're seeing is NHS workers, care workers, bus drivers, porters, shopkeepers, people from all walks of life who are dying from this disease and that they're disproportionately black and brown and multiculturally hued in all its varieties, then you begin to think oh these are normal people they have families they have children they have lives they live here they speak like us they might not look like us but they look like some of us because some of us also see ourselves in all these families and, and individuals who are being represented and so i think there's a moment in which it's possible to say that britain is multicultural because of its histories It's not multicultural by imposition upon a native population, rather it was the native population migrating to other places that Mm -hmm. created the roots by way of which people have now come to the metropole. But the British Empire, as Adam Elliot Cooper has argued, the British Empire was multicultural. So you can't critique the British nation for being multicultural if you don't recognize that its roots come from the multicultural conditions that are constituted by empire. Once you begin to recognise that and see these people as part of Britain, as citizens, you then begin to understand that the inequalities that they face are not because they're migrants, that they're somehow other. It's because of the racialised inequalities and hierarchies that we still haven't dealt with that come directly from our colonial past. And so I think this idea that we assume that all darker Brits are migrants, enables us to excuse the treatment or the inequalities they suffer by saying, well, they're migrants, they come from the outside. And actually my argument is no, actually we've always been inside. Ever since you came to where our ancestors were and incorporated us within your polity, however forcibly, you don't now get, having initially forcibly included us, you don't now get to exclude us. You have to reckon with that history that produces us as co constituted. And so in that sense, I'm hoping that this current moment provides us with the ability to reclaim the multicultural grounds of our common existence. Because if we don't take that opportunity, I'm not sure where we'll go.
0: Like I said, this scholarship has been around and we build upon it over the years. And the idea that we've always been here has been one of our main arguments. What has happened historically is that there have been manoeuvres to delay. Every time I say to recognise that I'm here, there's an excuse to be put as an outsider through citizenship, through the rights of man, through science, through eugenics. There's always movements to put me outside. Maybe it's the problem, philosophically, the idea of what we is, is the problem. Because how it's constituted at the moment, it's always a Western Europeans at the centre. And that's been universalised across the board. Maybe that needs to change. Because as far as I see it, historically, it's just moving pieces of chess. So I was applying for equality or campaign for the rights of men to recognise me as a human. You just shifted the goalposts. And now the, the conversation is not in terms of race, but in terms of culture. You're always shifting. So right now it's a philosophical question. Who is we and, and who belongs and who doesn't? That needs to change, right?
2: Absolutely. And in a way, there are so many different ways of approaching those very questions. And people do this in all sorts of ways. I guess my way is to take seriously the arguments that people make for who they think they are. So this is in the sense of thinking about those who occupy dominant positions or mainstream or standard narratives to sort of say, okay, so how is it that you organize your conception of who we are? Oh, you organize it in terms of thinking that Britain is a nation and Britain's had a history as a nation and therefore that history provides legitimacy for who's within this polity. Okay, so that's what you say. But what if I was to say to you that your historical conceptualization here is inadequate because Britain's actually never been a nation. It's never been a nation state. It may have had a national project. But that project was always articulated in the context of the state being an imperial state. And what constitutes the state as an imperial state is, for me, that it collected taxes from imperial and colonial populations. It collected those taxes and then it decided in Westminster what to do with those taxes there were separate taxes that were collected for the governance of empire in all the Imperial territories, Mm -hmm. but there was an additional tax, the main tax, which then enabled Britain to then go on. And so every single institution in Britain, or let's put it another way, there is no institution in Britain that has not been funded by the proceeds of colonization, enslavement and empire. Mm -hmm. And so if the taxes of people's globally, have contributed to the building up of Britain. What legitimacy does somebody have to say today that actually only those people who can demonstrate historical belonging to this nation have the right to make use of the welfare state, have right to make use of roads or the institutions of Britain because all our ancestors in effect, those of us who have a history connected to British colonialism have actually paid for the funding of these institutions. And so whilst there's different ways of contesting how one constructs the we, my way of doing it is by pointing to the inadequacy of the histories that dominant paradigms are constructed upon, looking at these broader connections that exist and then thinking how if we were to recognize those connections, would we be able to reconfigure politics in the present?
0: Well, when I'm speaking to people, and one of the, the kind of mental gymnastics that we do to get out of this kind of bind, I hear people describe it like I, as a dark skinned person, can be British, but a white person can be English. So there's an attempt to graft on whiteness onto certain contingents that are now that are separate from the historical moment, but are recognised in the everyday. So the white working class in a particular area going through particular economic, social, economic hard- hardships that is what constitutes someone who belongs right now. How do you argue against someone who's using the everyday and then sometimes slips into the historical? And it's not very clear. And this is what I'm kind of finding. The feedback I'm getting from people, it's, it's a very confused argument, but they're making it. And because and, and it becomes emotive, it's hard to argue against.
1: This is where Gaminda's scholarship is brilliant. And also I've seen you on, on a number of occasions, Gaminda, deal with these people that do these, these gymnastics around trying to not they're trying it's like they're trying to grapple with what you're saying but they're trying to consistently deny it I've seen you just go to town like you're one of the best people to see grapple with these people because they're often white middle class guys who's trying to who trying to intellectualize why what you're saying is wrong and it's just mad what they'll jump to like I think what Tiso's speaking to is, again, comes back to my concerns about this moment. How are these people going to reinvent their deniability of this stuff? What is going to happen next? Like, if we take the last 12 days in this example, some of the least likely people are engaging with, well, for me, the least likely people are engaging with legacies of empire. Should we take that um, as face value? Should we take that as that, that means they're willing to, Actually, deal with this stuff, or is it performance? I'm tired because it's just so mad seeing everything play out how it is, but also I'm nervous more than I ever have been. I think actually.
2: Well, they're huge questions, and just to address the point of being tired initially, I guess it's that fact that the world within which we live in the way that I understand it, is a world that's been in process for at least 500 years. So the project of European colonialism is one that begins with the turning of the continent of Abiyala into the Americas and then the connections that are established globally and the taking of, you know, the appropriation of resources, of wealth, of taxes, of labor, of people to make that project is something that has a very long history. And to grapple with that, if you think about the moments of decolonization, they've been going on for the last century versus 500 years of colonization. So these things partly to unmake them and then to remake the world we wish isn't something that's going to happen immediately it may not even happen in our lifetimes in the same way that it didn't happen in the lifetimes of Lumumba of Gandhi of you know all the the characters who've been involved in seeking to argue for different ways of living but if we don't participate in that project of making the world differently then it's not clear to me what the point of the work that I do is. So I don't do it in the sense that I think that there'll be any immediate change as a consequence of that. But I want to contribute to the project of making a different world. And this is my sense. Of, or This is my way of contributing. I mean, back to the question of thinking about class and race and the ways in which this discourse always gets shifted and I agree with you you know there's that if you say one thing then something else comes back and then there's always something else in, in relation to that and I just think ultimately for me that what I'm concerned with are aspects of socioeconomic inequality I don't like the fact that people uh, work in precarious conditions without contracts non-unionized without health care without sickness benefit all those sorts of things and so The issue isn't so much, you know, so what we've got is a history in which as a consequence of the ways in which unions were racialized in this country. So we often think about the US, but in Britain itself in the 1960s, in the 1940s, 50s and 60s, unions could decide that you could join the union or not based on the color of your skin. And a number of unions wouldn't allow black and brown workers to join them they would only allow other white workers to join them. If you had a union job, it was often a good job. It paid decent wages, it gave you access to all sorts of benefits. If as a black or brown person, you didn't have access to that, you ended up in non-unionized, precarious, badly paid work. And so you already had a hierarchy organized around race between good working class jobs and bad working class jobs. And that racialized difference was something that was produced and reproduced by unions. It wasn't until the 1960s and the Race Relations Acts, which a coalition of activists fought for, that unions were then no longer allowed to discriminate against black or brown workers. And so you begin to have the movement of black and brown workers into good union jobs after that period. So what you've had is the moving up slightly of workers who had been in very precarious work into good working class jobs, which then is presented as a diminishing of the quality of life of those white workers who had been in those jobs, because now they've got to work alongside black and brown workers. Now that that's presented as a relative decline for the white working class. But the reason why the conditions of jobs have declined is because also as a country, we voted in Thatcher, we voted in for the deregulation of labour markets, we voted in the, the attack on working conditions and benefits and so on. And so that has meant that more people who used to have good jobs now have worse jobs. But that's not the fault of black and brown citizens. And yet it's presented in that way.
0: How it always gets presented that if I gain something, it's at your loss. It's like a zero sum game. Just that kind of preservation, they always seem hesitant because they think if I can give any concessions, I lose out. So it comes a question of power. If I lose out, I become you and that cannot be happened. So how do you overcome that dynamic?
2: Well, we could have a commitment to good working conditions for all of us. You know, in a way, it doesn't have to be a competition between us. We could say that nobody should be in precarious work. Nobody should be in non-unionized work. People should be paid a decent wage with benefits and and, uh, regulations to make the workplace safe and all those sorts of things that we could have. You know, but the thing is that if we wish equality, then equality requires a transformation of the current conditions of privilege. And that will always be experienced by some people as loss. Mm -hmm. because the situation that is currently seen as normal it's not you can only understand the situation of inequality as normal if you benefit from the inequality Mm -hmm. if you don't benefit from the inequality then you don't see it as normal you see it as problematic and you wish to change it but in wishing to change it you need to persuade people for whom it's normal because they're not experiencing it that actually it is also problematic for them, because the situation of inequality for everybody affects those who are at the worst ends of it, as well as those who benefit from it. And therefore, we need to transform those conditions. And it's possible at times to persuade people of that need. And at other times, people who wish to argue for the maintenance of the status quo are the ones who have the upper hand.
1: The point you're making, Aminda, is what we're seeing now with COVID-19, the effects of inequality, even though they're un- unevenly felt, COVID-19 has shown us, but they affect everyone. So time for change, surely.
0: Historically, whenever change happens, the people at the top realise that change means them losing out. So they will seek to, so from the French Revolution onto the, the revolutions in the 19th century, they seek to understand change is something monumental for them, And it may mean they losing the position that they have built up over time. And and like I said, in the broader European context, like with the idea of Christianity, it was suppressed, but it changed. It It was a major factor in changing the Roman Empire. So people see that and they understand that, especially people who have power at the moment. So they become very resistant to change. So it's I I just struggle. How how do I how do we overcome that hurdle? Because it always becomes binarised and it always becomes a case of, well, I'm definitely gonna lose out if I give you any concessions. So the concessions I'm gonna give you are always gonna be guarded. So whether it's the right to vote for women, first it's over twenty ones, then it's a property qualification. All these things here that like, try to give you change, but it has to be it's pragmatic. I give you change based on maintaining my power
2: so this is in a way the questions are pointing to what how how we conceive of politics and how we conceive mm-hmm. of how change occurs and what needs to be done and and so on mm-hmm. and the way that i look at it is to think that we're in the world as it is it's configured in all the ways that it is mm-hmm. if we can understand what the basis is for the world to be configured the way in which it is we can have a conversation with people about the possibility of addressing the things that we see to be problematic because like i said if you are advantaged by a system of inequality you won't necessarily see the inequality that gives you that advantage because for you that's just normal because it isn't a cause for concern whereas for those who are disadvantaged by that system see the system. Because they see their position in it, and they see those who are advantaged by it. So this, I mean, you could sort of see this as Du Bois's double consciousness, or his, <laughs> you know, his whole idea of the veil—that those who are behind the veil, or as I would put it, those who uh, are disadvantaged by inequality, see both the conditions of their disadvantage and the fact that for other people it's normal. So that gives you a greater insight into the how the world is configured than if you're just advantaged by it. Now, I believe in the possibility that we can persuade people to understand the world differently than their experience demonstrates them as to how it is because if i didn't believe that there would be no point in being an academic or a scholar or seeking Mm -hmm. to talk to anybody so i have to believe in the possibility of learning and learning occurs when you can demonstrate a better explanation for the conditions for how they are than the ones that are there in as, as a dominant sort of sense and this is you know it's a much slower process it's not something that's going to happen overnight it's not as sexy as toppling a statue but i think it's just as important because it provides other people with the resources for understanding that the world isn't how they think it is Mm -hmm. and we have to be able to persuade people because it's only when we've persuaded those who hold positions of power and are dominant and so on Mm -hmm. that they then also see that even though they're advantaged by a world that's unequal, when the world is unequal, none of us are advantaged.
1: Even if you might think you are, until you notice it. CT, mm-hmm. I told you Gaminda would make us feel better. <laughs> <laughs> and then she would give us and then she would give us hope. And then she would give us hope. Gaminda, thank you so much for that. That personally, that's a really cathartic and hopeful conversation and reflection from you and something that I think many of us need during this moment so thank you so much and thank you for all the work you've been doing for for such a long time thank you Guinda and listeners we will see you next week